BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Wow, looks like William Teller's testimony before Congress is just insane. I mean, as in it's really going to hurt Trump. I shouldn't say hurt Trump. I mean, Trump hurt Trump, right? When Trump ordered Giuliani and Pence and all these other guys to put the squeeze, to shake down Zelensky, to shake down the president of Ukraine, and say, you will find or you will manufacture dirt on Joe Biden and his son, or you will not get your weapons. And the current U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, the guy who in his text message to Sunderland, the Portland hotelier who was the EU ambassador, but was you know eagerly doing Trump's work over there, in his text message to him said, I don't think it's a good idea, I'm paraphrasing from memory here, but basically I don't think it's a good idea to be withholding military aid until somebody does something for our campaign. You know, Trump, Pence, Barr, Giuliani, all these guys have been caught with their fingers in the cookie jar in a big way, in a criminal way. So we've got that, number one. Number two, I wanted to talk about this. Uh, this happened back in June, but it's just now coming out. 55-page presentation at Ernst & Young. Ernst & Young is one of the big used to be Big Ten, then it was the Big Eight. I don't know if it's the Big Three now or whatever it is, but one of the big accounting firms in the United States. And Marissa Higgins writing about this over at Daily Kos, among other places. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of articles about this. It's all over the Internet. Suggesting that people who are employees of Ernst & Young should look, should have manicured nails and should look healthy and should look fit. And the clothing in the workplace should be flattering but leave those short skirts at home. Now, if you're a male employee hearing that you should leave your short skirts at home, you may do a double take, but it turns out that this was not for the male employees. I mean, you know, there were male employees there, there were male employees in the room, but these kinds of message were for the women employees of Ernst & Young. And this was presented in June of last year, not 1965. This is not Mad Men. Well, I mean, it is, but this is a day and a half long training called Power, Presence, Purpose. Here's some actual quotes. Don't flaunt your body. Sexuality scrambles the mind. Women were also advised, now I'm, I'm quoting Marissa Higgins, who is summarizing what was said. Women were also advised to sit in an angle with, when speaking to men, the logic being that sitting face-to-face -face with men was too threatening to them. Women were advised not to interrupt men during a meeting, but to seek them out before or after. In other words, if you have something to say to a man who's speaking in a meeting, don't interrupt him, don't address him during the meeting, go talk to him after the meeting. You don't want him to feel like he's being confronted or challenged or corrected. They had a worksheet that listed masculine traits. These are actual quotes from the worksheet. Acts as a leader, aggressive, ambitious, analytical, has leadership abilities, strong personality. And then here's the feminine traits. This is how you ladies at Ernst & Young are supposed to behave. Affectionate, cheerful, childlike, compassionate, gullible, loves children. Female participants were told 
that their brains were more like pancakes and men's brains were more like waffles. Now, what the heck does that mean? Well, one woman who was in the seminar told a Huffington Post reporter, quote, that this is what she was told. This is what they were told. Women's brains absorb information like pancakes soak up syrup, so it's harder for them to focus. Men's brains are more like waffles. They're better able to focus because the information collects in little waffle squares. Isn't that special? Is this still going on in the workplace? Uh, particularly in a big company? You know, I get it that there's still, you know, probably in little restaurants, you know, uh, restaurant owners who are saying, you know, hey, you know, wear a sexier uniform or whatever. I certainly believe I'm seeing the results of that from time to time. Although maybe it's just, you know, people dressing the way they want to dress, but wow. I mean, you know, I thought that we were beyond this. I really thought we were beyond this. So if you have any interesting stories about this sort of thing, I would love to hear them where, you know, employers have said, if you're a woman and an employer, or for that matter, if you're a man and, and they've just simply made these kind of remarks that, oh, well, you know, women, their, their brains are different and they just, you know, they just don't work as well as men. You know, give me a shout. Edward in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Edward, what's on your mind today? Yeah, how you doing, Tom? Good. You know, it's so funny because when you say that, it's so true. It's still the same. Yeah. It's a man's world. I hate to say it like that, but it's like, you know, it's always pointing that way. But it's well, changing. Well, and, 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 and unfortunately, a man's world is a world that's more violent and more brutal. And, uh, you know. Unfortunately, yes. And I guess and that sounds sexist, <laughs> too. Although it's, you know, I, I think the testosterone poisoning, cultural testosterone poisoning is an actual real thing. But anyhow, back to you, Edward. But you know what it is, that Middle East, that whole thing, it's like, you know, I always, my father always said in 60, when they killed Kennedy, that was a coup. He said, then I seen the second coup in 2000 when Gore literally won that election. But yeah. let's look at it this way. Bush invades Iraq, you know, rehash all this stuff. Now we're coming to 2019 with the Turkey, which is a NATO ally. Greece is a NATO ally. They want to expand to take the fuel from that side and... Yeah, well, in Turkey, Erdogan just came out and said he wants nuclear weapons, too. Oh, believe me, there's nuclear weapons on the base because... We yeah, but the U.S. has them, but, but Erdogan has, wants his own, and Russia is building a reactor for him to do that right now. now listen, listen, listen. There's, there's big problems. Even that's why these GIs are killing themselves, because all they are, they're not fighting anything. All they're doing is guarding these are all wells and yeah. keeping the peace. Well, and this they're is what really Asper just said. He just soldier. held a press conference, and he said, we're pulling our soldiers back into the regions, into the uh, oil-rich regions of uh, North eastern Syria and northwestern right. Iraq. And, you know, the Kurdish regions, the Kurds ha just happen to be sitting on the regions that have the oil, which is why nobody wants to give them independence. But, uh, you know, spot on, Edward, spot on. Thank you. Annie in Atlanta. Hey, Annie, what's up? Hey, I just wanted us to start messaging like the Republicans do. Like, instead of calling it Citizens United, let's call it what it is, Rich Citizens United, or in the last case, Rich Russian Citizens United. That's all. Yeah, this, is, this has been my message to the labor movement forever, for example, is stop referring to these laws that, that uh, the, these free rider laws as work for less. Uh, excuse me, as right to work. Uh, call it right to work for less. I agree. Our messaging, stop referring to right to life and start referring to forced pregnancy. In fact, police enforced pregnancy. This is what Mike Pence tried to do, where women had to report if they had a, a miscarriage. They had to report themselves to the police in Indiana, you know, before they knocked that law down. call them rich some people's lives. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Excellent. Annie, thank you. for That's a good one. Robin in Belhaven, North Carolina. Hey, Robin. Women in the workplace? Hi, Tom. I'm calling about the article you were reading about a company uh, imposing and lecturing women on uh, how their brains think and their clothing and stuff. Right. Okay, so I encountered this little uh, bit last week. I grew up in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, and I wore hot pants and stuff, and we never thought anything of it, you know, miniskirts. Mm -hmm. So, uh, okay, so we're in this rural eastern North Carolina town with a school board that is like uh, draconian is just, is a mild-mannered way to say it. This was back in the 60s. No, this is today. 
day. I'm oh. talking about my school district where I moved okay. from D.C. down here to eastern North Carolina about 15 years ago. Okay. I'm still in shock. It's like moving back 100 years. Right. But apparently it's not just around here. It's all over the country, I think. So one thing is my granddaughter came home and talked about some little girls that got drug out of her class because their dresses appeared to be more than six inches above their knee, and the teachers actually brought rollers into the hallway to measure them. Oh, my. And they're not allowed to wear tank tops. They have to have their arms covered. So uh, I just turned your show on. I was late today. So I heard you talking about this company and about the women not to wear, you know, short skirts. Right. And I'm like, oh, my God, what are we? We're turning into, like, the Mideast. Yeah, the women or, have yeah, a handmaid's tale. Yeah. Right. We have to keep our bodies covered because, you know, men can't control themselves. Yeah. In fact, that was right out of that Ernst & Young training was that, uh, you know, sex scrambles the brain. <laughs> it's like, really? I mean, this is this is the message, you know, the, the, it, it, you know, I, I don't disagree that sex scrambles the brain, but that doesn't mean that women have to dress in a particular way so as not to cause men to go, huh? Right. Uh, Look, you know. hey, men, just, you know, get over it. Yeah, right? exactly. exactly. Robin, thank you for the call. Tom Hartman here with you. And another dimension of this, Mike Pence and the Republican War on Women took a sinister turn this week when Planned Parenthood was forced to abandon Title X funding. So they can no longer get payment for serving low-income women for things like cancer screenings and sexually transmitted disease screenings and treatments. And the, the major thing that they do is provide free contraception. And, of course, the white supremacist movement, the white nationalist movement, is hysterical about the fact that there's more brown babies being born right now than white babies. And in rural white America, in poor rural white America, areas that overwhelmingly vote for Donald Trump and watch Fox News, the principal provider of birth control and STD services and family planning and occasionally abortion, you know, few and far between, frankly. But the principal provider for those services for low-income women in these white counties is Planned Parenthood. And therefore, the white supremacists and white nationalists want to take down Planned Parenthood because they don't want white women having access to abortion or contraception. Now, in urban areas where it's more likely to be African-American populations, it's not just Planned Parenthood. There are a lot of other providers that are offering services. But in rural America, in white America, in white rural America, it's pretty much Planned Parenthood. And Trump just took that down. Planned Parenthood said, okay, we're going to give up $260 million in Title X funding because, because of this gag rule that says that we can't mention the word abortion, if, even if a woman asks. We're not going to put tape over our doctor's mouths. It's not even about providing abortion. It's about saying, well, that's one of your options. You know, just south of us, El Salvador has accomplished what Mike Pence has been working toward his entire life, a complete ban on abortions. And this week, a woman who was arrested there and put in prison, she's been in prison for almost three years because she had a miscarriage. And the local police asserted that this miscarriage was the result of her an abortion attempt, or maybe she, you know, jumped down the stairs too hard, or whatever, because she had been the victim of rape, and therefore they were convinced that she was trying to abort the baby, and she had a stillbirth or a miscarriage. I don't think it was long enough that you'd actually technically call it a stillbirth, and they arrested her and put her in prison. I mean, get ready, American women. Mike Pence already pushed legislation in Indiana that required women who have miscarriages or abortions to notify the police and to provide funerals for the remains. While the New York Times reports that numerous women across America are already being imprisoned for having miscarriages. 38 states now have laws that treat miscarriages as potential crime scenes because of so-called fetal homicide laws that have led to the imprisonment of American women who have had miscarriages as the result typically of either accidents where they've been prosecuted for like involuntary manslaughter. Oh, you had a car accident and you lost your pregnancy. You had, a, you had a miscarriage, you lost the child or the potential child or the fetus or whatever it may be, whatever stage. Well, 
That was your fault. We're going to prosecute you as if you'd run over a little kid on the street by accident. Because fetuses are people now. Or a woman who, has, who tries to commit suicide, takes an overdose of pills or something like that. And she survives the suicide attempt. And whether or not she miscarries. Oh, you might have harmed the baby. We're going to put you in prison. I mean, the Republican war on women is picking up steam. And what happens when women in America are totally disempowered like they are in El Salvador? And even, you know, an abusive or angry husband or neighbor could call the police and say, you know, the woman next door is four months pregnant, but I saw her smoking in the backyard. Or I think that she's taking crack. Or, you know, I, you know, I, I think that she's been uh, jumping up and down on the trampoline because she's trying to abort or miscarry. And boom, the police show up and off that woman goes to jail. This is in 38 states. This can happen to you if you're female and pregnant. Whether it's true or not, if somebody's going to testify against you, bang, you go to jail. You're listening to Tom Hartman. You know, I've been doing this show for over a decade, and, and until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule that naturally occurs in olive oil that regulates appetite. Louise convinced me there was a product worth sharing, and a year later, I have to say she was right. The key to losing weight is getting your appetite and those pesky food cravings under control. Once you do that, the rest is easy. The holidays are just around the corner, and my producer, Sean, wanted to lo lose a few pounds ahead of what she calls the eating season. Sean is trying Ridges on just one capsule with breakfast, and forget it. Second one at dinner for those days when you need a little extra help. Sean says when you don't feel hungry, it's easier to make better choices. It's only been a month, and Sean says she's really happy with how Ridgizone is working. The only ingredient in Ridgizone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant, and that really appealed to both Louise and Sean. Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Ridgizone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and get up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to Ridgizone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Ridgizone.com. Promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. Ridgizone.com. Rob in Cordville, Idaho. It says you disagree with me about Planned Parenthood? I think you're telling the people the lies. You're not bringing up the fact that Planned Parenthood was put together to kill off black babies. No, Planned Parenthood was not put together to kill off black babies, Rob. That's that's to kill off the black race in America. No, it's not. It's simply not the case. Yeah, Margaret Sanger had some pretty weird views about euthanasia, but they were widely shared back at that time. They were shared by Woodrow Wilson, the president of the United States. But that was not the basis of Planned Parenthood. A, that's not why Planned Parenthood was started. B, that's not what Planned Parenthood ever did. And C, that's not what Planned Parenthood is up to now. And this is one of the most pernicious lies promoted by the people who want to make sure that white women can't get contraception and that white women can't get abortions because, gee, we need more white people. Uh, James in Spokane, Washington. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Hey, Nam Yo, Renge Kyo, my friend. Back at you. You've said before how Reagan disempowered unions and, mm -hmm. and the working class and, and suppressed wages and stuff. Something I haven't heard you mention, but it's a big point. And believe me, I'm not, I'm not a sexist. I'm not anti-woman. But around that same time dovetailed right into his plans was the fact that women came whole scale into the workforce. Yeah. You know what I mean? In a big way, post Roe v. Wade, actually. And uh, let's not forget, 1961 was when the birth control pill was legalized and introduced. And by 1968 or 1969, you had something like 70. I mean, the penetration was enormous. About 70 percent of the fertile female population in the United States that was using birth control had switched to birth control pills. And so by 73, when Roe v. Wade happened, women were using birth control pills and then they had access to abortion after 73. So they had basically fully taken control of their reproductive timing, shall we say. And as a consequence of that, they could fully participate in the workforce even before there were protections for you know, maternity leave and you can't fire women because they get pregnant and that kind of thing. None of that existed back in the 70s, but they were coming to the workforce in big numbers. So what's your point relative to that, James? Well, I, I wonder if there was a PR campaign, because we, we know what the right is doing has been regimented since probably the end of World War II, if not before. I wonder if this was actually a plan to where they promoted it. Because I can't help but say 
that the children's welfare involves one of the parents, I think, or at least a close family member, being with them available to them at all times. You know, I don't think what's healthy for our society. For all well, the you know, there, that's, a, that's a pervasive theory, James, but now we've got about 30 or 40 years of good, relatively good and solid data on kids who basically grew up in daycare. And what we find is that they're not consequentially different than kids who grew up with, with one of the parents at home, that their, their uh-huh. ability to socially integrate is actually improved. They're more likely to be well socialized. Their vocabulary is actually larger than the vocabulary. In other words, they, they measure higher on IQ tests than kids who are raised by one of the parents staying home. There's actually some benefits to that. And the dire fear that they're going to be socially, culturally, emotionally disconnected from their own family has not seemed to uh, exist either. Because, I mean, daycare is only five, six, seven, eight at the most nine hours a day. And the rest of the time, they're home with their families. So be careful with that with that story, James, because it's, it's been fr- pretty well debunked. But, you know, I get what you're saying. And women in the workforce, are they're, they're a real thing now. And, and it's, you know, it's not going away and it's not a bad thing. And, you know, women... as much people as our men so to try to villainize them for being in the workforce you know it's just it's a republican thing but it's not a thing that i think is real carrie in new windsor new york hey carrie thanks for watching free speech what's up hey thank you for taking my call tom sure hi um so october which is almost over Mm -hmm. has been national domestic violence awareness month okay and i have um a hotline for people that I would like to say twice, once before and after, if you would allow me to just... Certainly. Go for it. The domestic violence hotline number is? 1-800-799-7233. Okay. And we'll give that again when you're done. And Or was that the essence of what you wanted to say, or was there something to add to it? Uh, Yeah, I'd love to just, um, you know, speaking of awareness, um, I have an easy way that people can daily tune in to how systemic the repression of women is. If you just go on the radio any day, any time, and notice how many songs there are about, oh, i got to get that woman, oh, I love that woman, Mm -hmm. And, and then how many songs do you hear about, you know, throughout history of, like, Oh, how I love my slave. He does so many things that I don't have to do, so I don't have to do them. And, you know, so the point is, unlike slavery and the repression of people of color, the repression of women seems to be totally acceptable in everywhere to the point that Harvey Weinstein, who, in case people don't know, is a famous person who was outed as being a serial rapist. And he's been in court and in, and in the news. He was almost completely welcome sitting in the audience at a comedy show until a couple of women stood up and spoke up. And instead of him being kicked out, they were kicked out. Right. Nobody. And one of them was a comedian. One of them was one of the people on the program. Yeah. And, on and, the stage, I yeah. think, at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So right. if once we hang up, I'm going to just say, thank you. I'm going to say the domestic violence hotline one more time. And then if you want to, I mean, this isn't totally related, but if you want to tell people about the bystander effect once I hang up, I'd really appreciate that if you would share that with people. Maybe, maybe you should do that right now, Carrie. Oh, well, I'm assuming by bystander effect, you're talking about if somebody doesn't speak up. Well, I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about. So, okay, it's a thing that psychologists, they started like seeing like a common pattern. And so they did research on it and they they kind of called it the bystander effect. And it started when a woman, I think in the city, was assaulted on the street and people. Yeah, this goes back to the Kitty Genovese case. In New York God, in I the 60s. Know. Yeah. See, there you go. You know, they, they knew everybody that was watching it from their window thought somebody else was going to do something or call right. the cops, and nobody did. And so right. these guys researched it and found that the more people that are witnesses, the less likely people are to do anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so okay. So, Carrie, we've, we, we're just about out of time. we got 15 seconds before we hit the break. What was the number again? The domestic violence hotline is one 800 Seven nine nine seven two thirty three. Right, and if you find yourself in one of these situations or somebody that you know and love, um, you know, do something. Make a phone call. Carrie, thank you. Thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us by Rachel Louise Snyder. I'm reading from the preface. This is page four. Suzanne and I exchanged small talk on her brother's driveway that day in 2010. She and the family were still in preparation and packing mode for their annual camping vacation into the hinterlands of Maine. And Suzanne had been greeted by her brother Andre with a long shopping list. She told me she worked for a domestic violence agency in town and that they had recently developed a new program that she was calling the Domestic Violence High Risk Team. Their primary aim was simple, she said. We try to predict domestic violence homicides before they happen so we can prevent them. It sounded immediately implausible. So implausible, in fact, that I thought I'd misheard some elemental piece of it. Predict, I remember saying? You said predict domestic violence homicides? I had come across domestic violence in my reporting over the years, not only in Cambodia, but also in places like Afghanistan, Niger, and Honduras. But it had never been a focus for me. Instead, it was always adjacent to whatever other story I was writing, so much so that it was practically banal. The young girls jailed for love crimes in Kabul, the Indian child brides who gave interviews only in front of the men who controlled them, the Tibetan women forcibly sterilized by the Chinese government, the teenage brides in Niger cast from their villages after post-pregnancy fistulas made them pariahs, the Romanian women forced to birth multiple children under Ceausescu and who now in their early 30s were grandmothers fated to poverty, the Cambodian street workers beaten and gang-raped for weekend sport by well-heeled Khmer teenagers. All of these women in every country were brutalized and controlled by men as a matter of routine. Men made the rules, primarily through physical violence. It was there lurking in practically every story I'd ever covered around the world, a shadowy background so obvious I didn't even have to ask about it most of the time. It was as common as rain. Until that moment in the driveway with Suzanne Dubas, if I thought of domestic violence in the United States at all, I saw it as an unfortunate fate for the unlucky few, a matter of bad choices and cruel environments. A woman hardwired to be hurt. But I never envisioned it as a social ill, an epidemic we can actually do something about. Now here was Susan Dubas talking about preventative measures for a type of violence that, for the first time, I saw operating along a continuum. The young girl in India married as a child, the Tibetan woman sterilized, the Afghan woman jailed, the housewife in Massachusetts brutalized by her husband. They all shared a common privation, what domestic violence victims across the world lacked, agency in their own lives. The forces that brought a Cambodian prostitute to the brink of death were the same forces that killed thousands of women and children and men, but mostly women and children, across America and the entire globe every year. An average, in fact, of 137 women each and every day are killed by intimate partner or familial violence across the globe. And this does not include men or children. Everything in my body suddenly came alive that day. I saw all the faces of women around the world from over two decades of work, and I realized how rarely I'd gazed inward at my own country, at what we got wrong and what it meant. The universality of domestic violence and how it crisscrosses geographical, cultural, and linguistic barriers. Maybe all those other stories were in preparation for the day that I'd meet Paul Monson and look at the mountains from his living room windows. I ended up following Suzanne to the farmer's market and then to the grocery store and then to the liquor store as she prepped for her camping trip. I helped her carry ice and peaches and hamburger meat. I asked question after question while she drove and while her mother Pat sat in the passenger seat chiming in here and there. How did it work? How many have you stopped? What else can you predict? My questions were vast and endless. Like many people who hold a casual acquaintance with a problem, I believed all the common assumptions. That if things were bad enough, victims would just leave. That restraining orders solved the problem. And that if a victim didn't show up to renew a restraining order, the problem had been solved. That going to a shelter was an adequate response for victims and their children. That violence inside the home was something private, unrelated to other forms of violence perhaps most notably mass shootings. The lack of visible injury signaled a lack of seriousness. And perhaps most of all, that unless we stand at the receiving end of a punch, such violence had nothing to do with us at all. Over the next few years, Suzanne Dubas and her colleague Kelly Dunn patiently taught me about the scope and history of an issue that still today is too often hidden. I learned why past approaches had failed and what we could do more effectively today. Between 2000 and 2006, 3,200 American soldiers were killed. During that same period, domestic homicide in the United States claimed 10,600 lives. 
This figure is likely an underestimate as it was pulled from the FBI's supplementary homicide reports, which gather data from local police departments and participation is voluntary. 20 people in the United States are assaulted every minute by their partners. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan called violence against women and girls the most shameful human rights violation. And the World Health Organization called it a global health problem of epidemic proportions. A study put out by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime cited 50,000 women around the world were killed by partners or family members in 2017 alone. 50,000 women. The UNODC report called home the most dangerous place for women. The book No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder. So picture your face in the mirror. You see all those wrinkles around your eyes or crow's feet or under eye bags? Now, imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I try it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. My under eye bags, wrinkles, and crow's feet were gone in minutes. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it, unless you tell them. And the effects last for hours. Go to TryPlexiderm.com, T-R-Y, TryPlexiderm.com, and use my code TOM, that's T-H-O-M, for 50% off, plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off, plus an additional $10 off. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Get rid of your wrinkles, under eye bags, and crow's feet today. Try, visit TryPlexiderm.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com or call 800-685-1292. Alice in Torrance, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Alice, what's on your mind today? I wanted to mention something. You brought up this book, which has been highly recommended to me, No Visible Bruises. Mm-hmm. I went through a tremendous situation where I tried to get a restraining order against a man who had used my money to become very, very wealthy on Wall Street. And I couldn't get a restraining order to save my life or my children's lives, even though I stood before a court with 16 stitches right down my face. I was told by one judge and my own lawyer that, you know, he's a real catch. I wouldn't let him go. How long ago was this, Alice? Well, it actually didn't end until about four years ago. I had finally fleet. I fled the East Coast because I had won U.S. federal court verdicts that confirm everything I'm saying, including the forgery of my signature to millions of dollars in refinancing with bank loans. I ended up bankrupted. And when I won, and I, and I refused to file bankruptcy because he had filed a false Chapter 11. It took years to get this before the Second Circuit Court in New York. Mm-hmm. And I did it on my own. I had to learn the law on my own. But on the other hand, that I'd like to point out how difficult it is, and please don't be offended by this, for mothers from prosperous and wealthy families to get a restraining order. It is so extraordinarily difficult, and there is no agency speaking on our behalf. And I will also tell you, the IRS went after me with a vengeance, and then they backed off, thank God. They even went after me when I was living in Seattle, but they were unbelievably gracious to me and stepped down when I proved everything to them, the forgeries, etc. And they warned me, they said, are you aware that a, US, that a state court judge in Connecticut gave your name and demanded that we pursue you? Wow. You know, Alice, I think that there's a presumption, and this is part of not just white privilege, but class privilege, that if a white man is wealthy, that he must be virtuous. And Absolutely. that's kind of the system that, that you know, you've encountered and you're describing, in my opinion. Well, I'd like to also mention another thing, and I, gosh, I don't really want to done myself like, too much, but I will tell you, in my family were major U.S. federal court judges who promoted and stood up on behalf of civil rights to the point where they had to live with marshals for the rest of life under danger. And that was used against me, my family's civil rights background. Wow. Amazing stuff. Well, Alice, I'm glad you made it through. A lot of women don't. I mean, this was, uh, I was, uh, what Alice is talking about is our book report today. It's uh, No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us by Rachel Louise Snyder. And it's in the mix now, so it'll pop up from time to time. 
And it's a, just a remarkable story about how, you know, something like, uh, over 100 women are, are attacked every minute in the United States. I mean, it's, it's just mind boggling. Uh, Alice, thank you for the call and thank you for having the courage to share thank your you. story with us. It's good talking with you. Thank you so much. We'll be back and thanks for listening to KPFK as well. Susan in Saratoga Springs, New York. You wanted to get back to religion? Oh, yeah, thanks, Tom, for taking my call. How are you? I'm well. I hope you are, too. Um, you know, my father was an old uh, an old Republican, and, and I do agree with regarding the Reagan years as being the beginning of the breakup of the uh, middle class in our country and corporatism rise. But, yeah. um, you know, he always said that, you know, opiates of the masses is what religion is. and Which was Karl Marx's phrase. Catholic. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I was raised Catholic, but I am an atheist now. I totally believe that religion has been used by the um, Illuminati as a way to control the masses. And basically, my statement about that would be that it's, it, I don't understand why, why we can sit here and talk all this on TV, or on streaming, of course, and so few people are aware of it. I mean, when I go out, and also on the a, on a manic uh, thing, I am manic, okay, and I'm very highly creative. I have a very high IQ, and I've always had issues in the uh, business world being a female because I actually say what I feel in a, in a very, very conservative way, but being an intelligent woman, it's been very difficult for me to really assimilate into our society, I do have friends that are intelligent, writers and whatever. But I think mania is also another form of ADHD. May well that be. brings to our society many, many gifts yeah. that should be appreciated and not drugged away. Yeah, it, it may well be. And, and some people are crippled by bipolar disorders, by generally how it's, how it's no, referred I'm to these days. Other people are not. And, and some people just have really up days and times or weeks or months and downtimes and weeks and months. And in fact, I think that I you can even that. you can even make an argument that depression, you know, the down the downside of, of mania is also adaptive because people who are depressed tend to separate themselves from the rest of society. And when we lived tribally, they would be the people who lived on the periphery of the tribe. They're, they don't sleep well. They're constantly you know, con concerned about what's going on around them. They would be the lookouts, the warning, the early warning system. But back to your, your point about religion, you said that you, you thought that the Illuminati was using religion. I don't think that we have to go that, that big. I, I think that Jerry Falwell Jr. is using religion to exploit the masses. I think that, you know, Franklin Graham is using religion to exploit the masses. I think these megachurch, and, and in every case, they're exploiting the, the, the masses for their own benefit. I mean, these guys have become multi-millionaires. And, of course, they don't pay any taxes, Mr. Hurtman. Right. There you go, Susan. You're absolutely you right. Know, and neither do educational institutions, such as Harvard and Yale. You're right. Yeah. Educational systems do not pay taxes. Unless they're for so profit. That's, that's another issue that should be taxed. I think, I think educational, higher ed, educational institutions such as those should be taxed. Well, I think you can make a, a strong case that they, at the very least, should pay property taxes. Um, but, you know, income taxes... But I, I'm, I'm all I'm all for charging uh, at least at the very least property taxes to churches. Susan, thank you for the call. Nice to hear from you. Mary in Tucson, Arizona. Hey, Mary, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hi, you said something about Biden and uh, the Ukraine situation where they're going to investigate him. I just wish people would realize that back in 14 when a Republican Congress gave money to Ukraine. They're the ones that said that they had that Biden or someone in the Obama administration had to investigate the corruption in Ukraine. Right. Well, and that was yeah. That was basically what they were saying. What the Republicans were saying is that the the Obama administration needed to cooperate with this corrupt prosecutor, and he's the guy that just came up with this. You know, Rudy Giuliani's been running around the world waving this uh, sort of like. Uh, 
you know, Joe McCarthy, I have here in my pocket a list of 100 communists in the State Department. Turned out there was no such list. It was a blank piece of paper. But Rudy Giuliani has been waving around a piece of paper and turns out it was a forgery put together by a Russian-Ukrainian billionaire oligarch who's in jail in Austria and awaiting extradition to the United States and or fighting extradition to the United States. And, you know, this guy commissioned this uh, apparently a forgery and Rudy's been using this. And now Bill Barr has got this federal prosecutor traveling around the world trying to track down or trying to corroborate that manufactured evidence. I mean, it's pretty mind boggling, Mary. I know. I mean, if people would just investigate themselves and pay attention. Yeah. If they would listen to what's going on. Well, if we just had a media that was doing a good job of investigative reporting, and I have to say it's gotten a lot better recently. I mean, they really dropped the ball on the Iraq war, you know, for example. Yes, they did. And on the Vietnam war before that. It's not like this is a brand new problem. But this immunity, uh, you know, this Teflon nature that that Reagan and Bush the elder had, and to a large extent, Bush Jr. and Cheney, you know, they were never held to account for lying us into a war that cost the lives of thousands of Americans, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, and displaced millions and millions of people through the Mideast into chaos and created ISIS and, and strengthened Al-Qaeda. They were never held to account for that. In fact, they've been rehabilitated. You got Alan hanging around, Ellen DeGeneres hanging around with George W. Bush. At the same time, there's this uh, meeting happening at the uh, Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Washington, D.C., one of the, the probably the fancy smanciest hotel in Washington, D.C., a meeting honoring powerful women, essentially. And all these powerful women are refusing to come because Kristen Nielsen is there, she being the one who was putting children in cages. Oh. So, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So there's a number of women who are standing up to her saying and standing up to the conference organizers and saying no, you know, including a, a famous entertainer. And, you know, it's just a bunch of people. So I, I think the worm is turning, Mary, and I'm very glad for that. But it's we have so far to go. So much damage has been done to our reputation, to our institutions. I mean, we don't even have time to cover in the news what they're doing with the Interior Department, the EPA and all these other agencies where they're just stripping the science out. They're selling off our national treasure. Trump is turning the Tongass National Forest into a mine. That's insane. Mary, thank you. Margie in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. Hey, Margie, what's up? Hey, Tom. Let's discuss this whole female, male in the workplace thing. Okay, go for it. I'm an over-the-road solo female truck driver. And I have heard this vice for over a decade, and I absolutely laugh. And I literally heard this last week of the safety person talking to a female driver over the phone. Mm -hmm. Well, you always need to park at the truck stop in the front row under the light so that you're close and you're to the truck stop. This is the most ludicrous statement ever said. Because if any truck driver out there knows that you park where you can get a slot in the truck stop. Well, let me ask you a question, Margie. Uh, you know, I, I've never been a truck driver, but just applying logic here, it would seem, uh, yeah, I'm assuming that the reason why you, they're advising you to park where the light is is so that you wouldn't be the victim of sexual assault. But truck drivers are all the time the victims of robberies. I mean, wouldn't the appropriate solution not be to say, uh, especially if you're a woman, park where the light is, instead to say uh, to the people who run truck stops, stops, make these things so that every 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 single parking spot is well lit and safe. That would be nice. Right now, I would like to find a place to park. Yeah. That the problem with truck driving is we don't have enough truck places to park at all. Remarkable. Much less as finding a well lit under a light at a truck stop. I will tell you where I park most of the time. In a dark lot at a customer where I'm delivering in the morning. Hmm. Because that's what we have available. Right. This, And you're right. This is not just a woman and man thing. And this is what, you know, it just aggravates me that, well, we are, t you know, the number of things I've been told that I should do differently as a female driver, as a male driver, is 
utterly astounding that I should only drive during the daylight. Think about that in the wintertime. Don't all these things, yeah, when you only have five hours of daylight in the northern half of the country, don't all these things kind of assume that men are just incapable of controlling themselves? I mean, isn't that the subtext Ab- here? Pretty, yeah, absolutely. It is absolutely the context out here. And the subtle thing, and here's the thing, trucking only, women compose 5% of truck drivers mm-hmm. overall. Now, you take out the ones that are local drivers, and you take out the ones that are team drivers with their, with their partner. Mm-hmm. That leaves maybe 1% to 2% of actual over-the-road truck drivers are female. Independent long haul. Right. Independent long haul. Now, look at things like real women in trucking. And the lawsuits against these training companies that put women in trucks with men for a month or two Hmm. and are up for that the trainers are sexually assaulting the women in the trucks. Oh, my. And then abandoning them on the side of the road if they complain. That's actually happening. Let's talk about this is at the lookup CRST, that's the name of a company, CRST lawsuit, women uh, being sexually assaulted. This is sure. happening all over the place. Wow. That's the one that I know off the top of my head, but right. it's, it's a thing with all of the major training. Co- I mean, so, yeah. So I, instead, of, you know, instead of just saying, here, women, are the 35 ways you've got to change your behavior and how you dress and what you do in order to accommodate the fact that men are out of control, how about instead putting in some controls on men? That doesn't happen. I mean, I was literally at a truck stop fueling my truck in a fuel stop. And I had a truck driver come up to me and say, what are you doing at once you're done fueling? I'm like, I'm going to be driving. Oh, you can't do that. I want to play with your big boobies. Oh, geez. Yeah. This yeah. Can we start talking? I am so sick and tired of people telling me how I should act, how I should behave, how I should talk, how I should direct, how I should walk. How about let's start talking about to men and most importantly, talking and teaching boys how to behave. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, And these are lessons that I suspect are being taught to boys more commonly now than they were, you know, 40, 50 years ago. But, yeah, and, and it starts in the home, and it starts in the school, and, and it starts in our culture more broadly, and that's, that's, I think, the conversation we're having. Margie, I need to move along, but thank you for the call, and thanks for sharing your story with us. Uh, it's great to thanks hear from you. Thanks for letting me rant. My, my pleasure. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Bloomberg reports there's an increasing number of people concerned about their wealth due to the fear we may be entering a larger economic crisis than 2008. If you've been paying attention, you know the Dow recently had its sixth largest point loss in history, and the stock market continues to show extreme volatility. Meanwhile, central bank gold purchases have risen to a six-decade high, sending gold prices higher. CNBC and the World Gold Council reports Russia and China are swapping out U.S. dollars from their own portfolios, investing in safer, more liquid assets like gold. And what makes things even more suspicious, the U.S. Federal Reserve reportedly holds the most gold of all central banks. What's everyone getting ready for? If you share the gut feeling that something is soon to go south with the global economy, call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Proper gold and silver strategy will help secure your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Gold. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Eileen in Columbia, South Carolina. Let's get Sirius XM. Hey, Eileen, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. My husband and I own a small print shop, and we have one customer come in, and he's an older gentleman that we do work for. 
And about a week ago, I was in the conference room because I had a big project. I had to kind of jump into production and help out. And he is waiting to talk to my husband because, of course, he's not going to talk to me. And he he looked at me and said, now, doesn't that just be doing housework? Hmm. So I corrected him. And then last night he called, as he calls every day, and um, he... He recognized my voice and said, well, is this Miss Jerry? And I'm like, no, you know my name is Eileen. And, you know, stop, you know, stop doing that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a customer I have to put up with. But I correct him, and my husband gets frustrated. He's like, well, he's an older man. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'm educating him because I'm tired of being degraded by him. And I said, you know, I'm not going to tolerate it. And I don't care if he's a customer because I'm willing to lose him as a customer, you know, because he's not going to speak to me nor any of my female employees that way in a degrading way. Yeah. I can tell you back in the 1980s, we owned a travel agency in Atlanta. And I remember one day Louise was running the agency at the time and she and I owned it together. And this guy came in and I was there. This guy came in with a copy machine salesman, right? And he's wheeling a copy machine into the office. And Louise walks up to the front of the, of the place and confronts him and says, uh, you can turn that thing around and get it right out of here. And he says, well, little lady, I'd like to see your boss, you know, with his <laughs> Atlanta drawl. Yeah. And I thought she was going to take his head off. But she fills in here, and, and, and she just had to, to run out a minute ago, but she's been answering phones all day. And, and you know, two days a week while Joyce is training on, on the audio board and the video board, uh, Louise fills in and answers calls. And, and almost every day, we hear from her or from Joyce about men who call into this program and say to the female call screeners, well, sweetie, or, you know, hey, honey, or, or whatever. And, and it's like Louise has thrown that back in their faces so many times, I got to tell you. But it's, it's still going on, and it goes on every single day in this business, you know, I can tell you. And, oh, and uh, it, it goes on in the um, financial world because we were yeah. looking to refinance the house, and this guy was meeting with us and said, oh, well, I know numbers are a little confusing for the little woman. And my husband just sat back in the chair and he's like, well, (laughs) she's got a degree in financial planning. And I had the the PM, I had the mortgage payment figured out before he did. And I'm like, yeah, it's not really that confusing. Yes. It's, It's so aggravating. But hopefully, you know, I have three sons and I tell them, you are never treating women any way other than respect and as an equal. And I'm like, and you treat them the way you want your sister treated. So all we can do is do our part, but I I still think we all need to stand up and call it out. I don't care if it's a customer or whatever. We just cannot tolerate this because it's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome, Eileen. Thank you very much for the call and for sharing that story with us. Carol in Hemet, California. Hey, Carol, what's up? Yes, earlier you had talked about why the uber powerful rich so strike down social programs, etc. Why do they do this? And I think besides greed, there's many motivations, but one is that there are certain segments of the population for which it is allowed to have utter contempt. Simplified long time ago by Jay Gould, one of the robber barons, railroad mm. man, who said, I can hire, during a strike in 1986, I can hire half of these workers to kill the other half. This yeah. is the contempt and the attitude. And re- more recently, I was watching an interview. I cannot remember the name of this man. Another uber rich, because he's rich, he can speak out on topics. And he was speaking on climate change and, you know, food shortages and stuff. And he said, and I, I was shaken, he said, people, this, this really is not a problem because people need to get over the taboo of eating the dead. And he was serious. Aye. Anyway, that's all I wanted to add. Yeah, some of Thank these, you, so much. you know, what what gives Charles Koch the right to say that he's going to change American domestic policy to say that 
you know, working mothers who, or anybody for that matter who, who are living below the poverty line shouldn't have access to food stamps or health care. I mean, what gives him that right? I mean, he, this is the most elite of all elitist things to say, well, I know better and I'm going to fund a multi-state program to do that. It's, it's, it is so, it, it, this is, this is the definition of hubris. Carol, thank you for the call. Thank Very, very well said. Richard in Chicago. Hey, Richard, what's up? Well, hi. I hope this is uh, ads. Everything you're saying about this, this thing at the accounting firm is absolutely correct, but I was going to add a couple other little minor things. I spent 40 years pretty high up in some corporations. Some of them are 100, over $100 billion in sales. And the men aren't exactly uh, also speaking up. It, it is a strange hierarchy where you are so worried about your appearance as a male because uh, you have male-dominant guys, you know, and that's generally the, the rule. I once asked a question about something, a write-down that we were doing of, of $1.5 billion. I said, how are you going to measure the effects of that? It's, it's, the answer was, if you don't trust management, you should resign. That's what it was said to me. Wow. So, uh, you know, and the other thing about women, too, I, it was another uh, other side of this was there was a, a, a big developer that we used. And they hired the most beautiful women in the world. And I went to meetings and I went to their offices and I just kept my eyes straight ahead. You know, which was hard. they told me the reason they did it. They said when they go into a building department, they wanted their people to be first in line. So it's uh, wow. just a little aside. But you know, that's a big thing in the pharmaceutical that. industry, by the way. I, you know, I've, yeah. I've got a couple of friends who are physicians and they talk about how these drug companies go out of their way to hire really attractive women. And, uh, you know, particularly... Yeah, yeah. To, to get to the male doctors. Yeah, so it's just, you know, the meritocracy in corporations. I mean, it's outrageous what, what they did, what they, what they say to women and how they're treated. And I was in the 70s. It was horrible. But I just thought I'd throw in a little aside because everybody thinks corporations are these meritocracies and everything is, you know, perfect. Uh, but you're exposed one side, and I thought I'd add to it. No, yeah, at that level, large corporations are more like Lord of the Flies worlds. And, uh, you know, I, 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 Louise and I used to own an ad agency in Atlanta, and we had some very, we had at least a dozen, maybe more, Fortune 500 companies that were our clients. And I remember talking to the vice president of one of the largest hotel chains in the United States, and he made the comment to me that he never hires anybody who is smarter or more competent than he is, because that person would represent a threat to him. And I always, you know, as, as a business owner, I always try to hire people who are better than I am, because, you know, basically I benefit from their being better than I am. I, I own the company at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. Um, you know, yep. but it's like this. You're, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, that's the way management ought to be. It's very rare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Richard, thanks for sharing the story. I appreciate it. Tony in uh, Paella, uh, Washington. Hey, Tony, what's up? Oh, hi. Yeah, I have a um, slightly different opinion about the um, the way females dress and this whole thing going on with females. I, I'm 78 years old, so I grew up in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and I wore mini skirts in the 60s. Mm -hmm. But I, I have, okay, and I, don't, and I think, Totally. I think women's brains should be respected and their opinions and they shouldn't be called sweetie enough. But isn't there some small modicum of modesty that uh, uh, people, women should have with, with other, I mean. Oh, well, I think like men my, too. Yeah. But my 13-year-old granddaughter is wearing tights that show everything. This, yeah. And I think these tights that women wear is just, I kind of, I mean. Yeah, I know that okay. there's a there's actually a dispute around there's there's a lot of dispute around this, particularly in our public schools, but also in some workplaces. There's a word for those kinds of tights, and I'm forgetting what they are. I'm not sure well, that there's quite I a just, male equivalent of that right now, anyway. No, I don't. I don't think so. But I I just think that there there should you know I don't think women should be told uh, how to behave or should be called sweetie. But right. I think they should possibly dress a little bit decently so that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it just not. I just don't agree with with uh, the way. Well, the, but that's that's like rationally fitting into the mainstream of society, which I guess we've always tried to do, and and the and the standards and norms of society change over time, but it's not altering your appearance. I mean, the the whole thing of this Arthur Anderson thing was alter your appearance so that so that the so that the men will feel safe. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, no, and that's ridiculous. And, yeah, act, yeah. and acting childlike and affectionate, that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I don't agree with any of that. But I just think there should be some small modicum of, of uh, modesty in the way uh, women dress. Because um, basically, like you're saying, well, men should be taught uh, to control themselves. But obviously they're not because they're raping yeah. and uh, there's a lot of rapes and abuse and all kinds of things going on. So... And Obviously, they don't have a Yeah, and it's still going on. Know? I mean, there was a report just uh, two weeks ago that 30% of college graduates, uh, women college graduates last year, reported that they'd been sexually assaulted on campus, and fewer than well, 20% of go. them uh, reported go. it. And this, yeah. this, is why, this is why the Muslims are so, they, they go to the opposite extreme. But when they look at our girls who go and go and dance nude in clubs and things, they think, well, this is where it leads, you know? Yeah, yeah. Tony, thank you for the call. Although in many of those Muslim countries, you know, uh, rape and sexual assault are just like no, routine. I, you know, it's, I shouldn't say Muslim, I should say fundamentalist, because it's really, those are kind of handmade. Christianity has been there too at times, and some of the Christian sects are even there right now. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag your end, and tell your friends about our program. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Hey, I want to tell you about a great podcast, The Election Ride Home. Someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or maybe even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? What do the polls say? It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest news and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your web browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, Search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast.